Well, good morning, church family. This morning, the title of the message is Rest and Keep Running. Rest and Keep Running. I think both of those are part of the Christian life. I think we probably tend to neglect one or the other, maybe depending on our temperament. Maybe we work, work, work and don't know to rest. Or maybe we think life is perpetual rest and we're yet to get engaged. But the Bible likens the Christian life to a race in several passages. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, when I was in seminary, they'd say, if you see that word, it's there for a reason. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In other words, therefore, since we continue to hear testimonies of what God has done and is doing in and through other people, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us remove the distractions. Let us be a little more focused on the race and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Galatians 5, 7, Paul writes, You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? What distracted you? What took your focus off of the race? And in 2 Timothy 4, 7, toward the end of his life in ministry, Paul writes this to his spiritual son. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. I know that each one of us want to end our lives with that sentiment. So we know it's a race, and to run in a race, it means training, and it means discipline, and it means effort. But it equally means surrender and reliance upon His Spirit. It means rest and refreshing. If we can't learn to be still in his presence, if we don't know the source of our strength and comfort, where to go for the rest and the refreshing, we have no business trying to minister to other people. And we will burn out. Everything we do is an outflow of a relationship with Christ. It is about allowing Jesus to change our hearts having a relationship with him with an increasing level of intimacy. And that changed heart produces changed behavior. All else is religion. It's an attempt at human effort. It's an attempt at approved morality. See, being a Christian is about living right, but it's about so much more than that. It is about dead people becoming alive. It is about sinful people being made right with a holy God. It is about people who are in darkness coming to light. So everything we talk about is meaningless apart from a new life in Jesus, and I want to make that clear. D.L. Moody said the scriptures were not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. We don't have the Bible just so we can memorize the Bible. We have the Bible so we can memorize the Bible and internalize it and apply it. To not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Not just so we're smarter, we can win Bible trivia, and you know, when somebody says a scripture, no. So we allow the word of God to penetrate. A few weeks ago, we mentioned that 
The scriptures call us to an increasing level of intimacy, to greater and greater intimacy with the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me and find rest. Follow me, do what I do, namely become fishers of men and ultimately abide in me or find your very home in my presence. Live all of life with an awareness of and in light of a relationship with Jesus. So I want to talk more about these things this morning because sometimes I think we think that this kind of a spiritual life is reserved for the academics or the priests or the pastors or the monks. It's not just for the everyday Christian, but that's simply not true. Resting in Jesus needs to be all of our way of life. You've heard me say this quote before, I'm sure. Augustine said, Because you have made us for yourself, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because you have made us for yourself, O Lord, because we've been created with, for a relationship, with a desire for a relationship with you, all those other things will leave us feeling restless empty, like there's a void. And I suspect that some of you, maybe you're here and you've identified that problem. A lingering sense of restlessness. Maybe you have a good marriage, decent kids. You've done well in your chosen profession. You make a good living, yet deep down inside, there's still this sense of restlessness. Well, that's good. Because being uncomfortable is often the impetus to change. That restlessness is God's, you know, knocking on our shoulder saying, hey, excuse me. Bringing attention to the fact that even if everything looks the way we think it should look, which almost never happens, but even when it does, in those moments we look back and go, you know, I'm grateful, everything's going well. If we don't have Christ, there's still the sense of, of something missing. Make no mistake, everything we talk about week after week after week is always about healthy relationships with God first and then with one another. That's why we talk about community groups being so important, especially in a larger church like this. Because the New Testament was smaller groups of people who did life together. It wasn't people who had their work life and their church life and their home life. It was people who had their Jesus life. And so we're called to encourage one another, to keep one another accountable, to pray for one another, to help one another, to be together in a community of believers that we're not going through what we're going through alone. And if we cannot live out in our families and in other relationships, Christ-like love and sacrifice, we can't do that if we don't spend time with him. We can't do that if we, not, if we don't allow ourselves to be developed spiritually. There is nothing more important than your spiritual health. Nothing. There's a hierarchy of human needs in psychology. If there's a Christian hierarchy of human needs, your spiritual life is more important than your physical life because only one is eternal. So don't make the mistake of neglecting your spiritual life. That's a fatal mistake. So Father, we pray even now that you begin to minister to our hearts. Holy Spirit, minister to us now, God. Have your way. 
Prepare us, God. Help us to give you full access to say, Lord, here I am. Allow your word and your presence to penetrate my heart, to show me those areas where I need to give things up, to show those areas where I need to follow you, to rest in you, to allow you to do what you want to do in and through me. Have your way in this word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we live at such a hurried pace, we often focus on completing tasks over creating communities. Because we live at such a hurried pace, we often focus on completing tasks over creating communities. I often focus on completing tasks over creating communities. It's easy. We want to be productive. We want to be efficient. We want to get things done. And that's not bad, but if you notice in the Scriptures time and time again, when Jesus was ministering, I don't know if they had like a staff meeting in the morning and Jesus said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do, right? But there, was, there seemed to have been a plan the disciples had, and then there would always be an interruption. Somebody wanted to be healed, or maybe the children came. And do you notice Jesus, Jesus never treated the interruptions as interruptions? Those are the very things. Those are interruptions. Those are divine appointments. I, you know, I, I admittedly, and it hasn't happened in a while, my kids are older, but when my kids were younger, I would be developing sermons on, you know, being patient or, you know, you know, you know being loving or, you know, and the kids would come and interrupt me. And I'd be like, not now. I'm trying to do a sermon on being loving and patient. Get out of here. The Lord would deal with me. Whoa. It's not just about what we know, and it's not just about what we say. It's about how we live, and, and, and it's good to get things done. I'm like, you know, OCD. I got spreadsheets with links to other spreadsheets. But sometimes, God only has one thing he wants you to do for that day. And maybe it's not on your list, but it's on his. So we've got to be open to the, to the Spirit, to hear that still, small voice. Maybe it's, for you it's just rest so you can keep running. You've probably heard this phrase before, but we often let the urgent crowd out the important. We focus on where we invest our finances, but we neglect where we invest our time. Now many of the things we make idols of aren't inherently bad. They're just secondary things that we make primary. Secondary things that we make primary, like career, or family, or children, or relationship. Not bad things, certainly good things, blessings. But those secondary things become idols when they're primary things. When we put them above, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. See, work is not bad. Work is good. It was instituted before the curse. I know that's bad news to some of you. But work is not the result of the, of the curse. Tending the garden which precursors, it can be a great joy. In fact, it is a great joy. It is a blessing. And I've mentioned before, if today you came up to me and said, Pastor Brian, the Lord told me to write you a check for 10 million bucks. And if he's told you that, by the way, you know, just let me know. If you did that to me, I wouldn't change a single thing in my life. Nothing would change. Because I'm doing what God's called me to do because I'm resting in him. Because my life and my ministry is an overflow 
of being obedient to Jesus. I've said before, and it hasn't happened in a little bit, but you know, I used to be at Teen Challenge, and I was pastoring the church full-time, and I was in school, full, all this stuff at the same time, and I used to throw my hands up and be like, Lord, I am done. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a Teen Challenge. I, don't, I just want to be a guy who loves Jesus. That's it. I'm done. I'm, I want to walk away from it all. And he would say, okay. And then I would sit at his feet, and he would speak to me, and, and he would refresh me, and he would renew me. And I would say, Lord, where do you want me? And he would say, here's where I want you. This is what I want you to do. But are we willing to have those conversations? And if at some moment it changes and what we want to do doesn't line up with what he wants us to do, are we willing to say, I'm done then. I'm going to walk away. Our lives, the way we live, should be in response to God's calling in our lives. Don't live like the whole point of your life is just to succeed in building your kingdom and your things above all else because the graveyards are filled with people who sacrificed family at the altar of success. The graveyards are filled with people who sacrificed God at the altar of their other relationships. That's why Jesus makes clear to us in Matthew 6. He he draws a contrast between the world system, between the pursuit of accomplishment, between wealth and self-sufficiency, or humility and dependence and service. And if you get this wrong, you will remain restless. Your life will be fraught with worry because you haven't learned the primary thing. Jesus says this, do not worry. We don't need to go to the Greek. We don't need the translation. We don't need a commentary. Therefore, remember what we just heard? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life? And that's really it, right? That's the powerful close. He's not saying, he's not saying don't, you know, don't work or don't make plans. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the context is don't worry. Everything else is under that heading. So in other words, don't be stressed out. Don't be constantly. The word worry, it doesn't mean just to be concerned with. It means an anxiety. It means an uncertainty. It means an obsession. You know, psychologists have said that they believe that up to 80% of the stuff we worry about never comes to pass. That means if you take the stuff in your head, the hypotheticals, the what-ifs, and you think about that, 80% of the stuff that you're worried about never comes to pass. Jesus is saying, don't worry. Is it going to give you more time on earth? Is it going to make a difference? And he closes by saying this, but... In other words, instead of living like that, here's an alternative. Seek for us his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. See, it's a scripture about priorities. About first things first. 
And I know those are the words of Jesus, and so you might say, well, you know, that's what he did. I mean, Jesus was a, was, a, was a teacher. He was a minister, right? He didn't have a family. He didn't have kids. He didn't have a mortgage to pay. It was easy for Jesus because that's all Jesus had to focus on. Truly, some of that is true, but here's the primary example. Jesus lived his life on earth in reliance upon and in obedience to the Father. Jesus lived his life on earth in reliance upon and obedience to the Father. Everything he did was a result of that. So who do you ultimately rely upon? Who are you obedient to? I want us to look to someone that we, we can't say wasn't busy. This example, we can't say he didn't have responsibility or he didn't have a family. And we're going to learn to adopt the secret, this pattern that Jesus would, mo- would model. And the person we're going to learn from this morning is King David. Just in case you think you had more work or home responsibilities. David was a king. Anyone else here a king? I'm not even the king of my own house, okay? So David was a king. David, he had seven wives. Now I heard somebody say once, You weren't meant to have seven wives because it's mathematically impossible to be wrong more than 100% of the time. So you can't, it doesn't work. David had seven wives, 20 kids, 19 sons and a daughter. I would say it's fair to say that David had some responsibilities. I would think it's fair to say that David had a little bit of stress. I don't know if those kids, you know, the teenagers, can you imagine? And yet David still wrote this. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, means sincerely, with intention. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Not the words of somebody who just had an intellectual understanding of who God is someone who had a deeply personal, relational understanding of who God is. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you, Psalm 63, 1 through 3. See, David learned and Jesus modeled this pattern that God shows us from the beginning in creation. Genesis 2.2, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God wasn't tired. The word rest, it means he ceased working. But he established a pattern for us. In fact, having set the example of rest in Genesis, in Exodus, we see it actually becomes a command. Because we don't do good with suggestions. We don't even do good with commands, if we're honest. But it moves from a suggestion, from a, from a pattern, from an example to a command. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. He goes on to say, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Exodus 20, verse 9 through 11. 
In Exodus 23, 12, we're actually told a little more about the why. It says, six days do your work, but on the seventh day, do not do your work so that your ox and your donkey, basically all your workers, your entire household may be refreshed. And the word refreshed here comes from a Hebrew word, and it means to breathe or to be breathed upon. We hear the expression, that's a breath of fresh air. Here we see it's for our benefit the command to rest was instituted. Because you can't just keep running. You have to rest and then keep running. So back to David. If we're going to look at what he tells us, I want us to know him better. Because sometimes, you know, we hear, we hear stories of people in the Bible and we, we strip their humanity of them. Oh, David, I mean, he was, a, he, was a, a, you know, he was a giant of the faith. As if, like, our God is different than David's God. As if we don't have, like, the same level of access. World famous, David. The Bible says he was a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a, a, a valor, a warrior, a priest, one prudent in speech, a handsome man. And it says the Lord was with him. First Samuel 16. Listen, David didn't start out as a mighty man of valor. I've said this before. You know what David started out as? A stinky boy of sheep. That was David's training. That was David's law in life. In fact, when the prophet came to interview men for the job, Jesse didn't even have David apply. Brought forward his oldest son, figured this must be the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David, for all his flaws and major mistakes, was a man who had a heart after God. See, David was young when Samuel found him. He was out in the fields tending his father's sheep. Yet he was in God's training ground learning to be a king. Don't despise lowly tasks. They develop us. They develop our character. He spent hours alone tending sheep. He learned what it means to survive in the wilderness to sleep under the cover of darkness. In that solitude, I'm sure David had many prayerful conversations with God. We see proof of this in his writing in the Psalms. David lived for a season in obscurity. Unknown. Marginal. Chuck Swindoll said this, Men and women of God, servant leaders in the making, are first unknown, unseen, unappreciated, and unapplauded. And the relentless demands of obscurity, character, is built. And the relentless demands of obscurity, character, is built. Strange as it may seem, those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. 
Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. See, we see so many people who are overworked, overwhelmed, underrested. We have two dogs at my house. We have a beautiful English cream golden retriever who's obedient. You know, if somebody ever broke in the house and, you know, she would just like welcome them. Like she doesn't know. She's, she's the sweetest dog and she's obedient. You tell her, you know, she'll do whatever. Then we have a puggle. Puggles are really cute when they're puppies and that's, that's all they got going for them. This dog, I'll call her and she'll look at me in my eyes She'll just look at me purposely like, I'm going to run the other way, but before I do, I just want to look at you. I just want you to know that I'm not going to listen. And then she'll take off down the street. I'm going somewhere with this. And they're crazy, especially, you know, feeding time, they're hyper, and they run around, and they're nuts, and they're jumping up and down at the door, and they want to eat. And if you come over, they're going to jump on you, and they're, you know, they're hyper- you go outside, you throw the ball, you don't watch it, they'll take your legs right out there. They're crazy. They're, you know, they run around f- boundless energy. And then other times, you watch them, and they're just laying there, usually both in the same bed. They have their own bed, but usually they squish. And sometimes the sunlight will come, you know, they'll find that warm place, and the sunlight comes to the window, and they just lay there at peace, not a care in the world, resting, Ready to keep running. Ready for the moment that, you know, people are there or they're going to play again. Or, but they need that season. They need that period of rest, of refreshing, of downtime. Do we recognize our need for that same thing? Because, see, after they're rested, they have more energy, they have more strength. They're more ready to engage in play. See, rest doesn't mean giving up. Rest isn't a perpetual state. We don't stay in rest. It's preparation. Christian rest is preparation. Judges 8.4 says, Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over, weary yet pursuing. Weary yet pursuing. Tired, but continuing on. In our context here, weary from life, yet pursuing Jesus. Finding our calling and our rest in him. So where are we this morning? We describe the problem, this sense of restlessness, of busyness, a breakdown of relational health. We may be economically You know, we may have some economic prosperity, but we are in relational poverty. Throughout history, there's only two ways you can meet needs. You can meet them independently, by yourself, and that's sort of the American way, right? And we we celebrate that, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Or needs can be met by a community. You can, you can, you know, produce something and then you trade it with somebody who produces something else or somebody needs help and you help them or when you need help. And that's the way we're meant to, to live. We, we were designed to be in community. God exists, the Trinity, in community. Community is part of our identity, our makeup. And the more independent we get, I mean, you could work from home. Amazon could deliver everything. You could have, you know, your groceries delivered. You could never leave the house. 
You hear stories of, you know, somebody died, and then like, you know, six months went by, nobody even knew they were missing. It is a deficit to each of us when we don't exist in community. We're designed to exist in community. King David is an example of, in Scripture of having found the answer. So what did he learn? See, the secret is not just in the knowing, it's in the doing. It's not just about, you know, memorizing and knowing. Those are important things only insofar as we apply them to our lives. And that's why we need each other. We need the church. The reason we gather here is to worship the Lord and then to be equipped. It's to see each other, to encourage each other. All of that is good. But it's to be equipped for ministry. That's why the church exists. The church just exists that we would be equipped to minister to others. That when people come to one of the pastors and they say, hey, pastor, you know, I'm trying to minister to this person. Can you help me figure out how to reach them or help me, you know, be more efficient in ministering to them? Not saying, hey, pastor, this person needs to hear about Jesus. You tell them. It's a both end, right? I mean, it's, it's a both end. And sometimes I get, I'm not saying don't ever call us about, but what I'm saying is our goal is to equip you for the work of ministry. And so I love you, but it's not about you. It's not about you. Jesus died for us, and then we put our faith and trust in him, and then after that we're here for them. Those that don't know, that's why the church exists, to proclaim the gospel, to go and make disciples. So David shares with us some key concepts of this life of abiding. And there's three things we're going to look at, not optional things, foundational things, necessary things. Turn with your Bible to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, we're going to learn three things about a life abiding in God. It's a life of humility. It's a life of study and stillness and silence. And it's a life founded in the hope of God. Three verses long. Psalm 31, packed with amazing spiritual truth. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said Psalm 31 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. One of the hardest to apply. It's been called a psalm of interior silence or of steadfast hope. And it reveals to us some ways we can experience a life of peace and contentment. If I would have started the sermon and said, who here wants peace and contentment? We would have all said yes. And so here the Bible is going to show us the way. Some of this stuff came from a sermon I read by a pastor named Ernie Arnold. Some of the titles, the translations of the titles here are Childlike Trust in the Lord. The NASB Bible I'm reading from, the title is, I Have Calmed and Quieted My Soul. We need to learn, church, to calm and quiet our soul. It's not the title we're going to focus on this morning. I'm going to read this, then we're going to break it down. Psalm 31, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes arrogant. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. I have certainly soothed and quieted my soul 
Like a weaned child resting against his mother, my soul within me is like a weaned child. Israel, wait for the Lord from this time on and forever. Real life psalm, practical psalm, a psalm that has application in our life. It comes from the heart of a man who would experience his share of rejection, of heartache, of pressure, of pain, of joy, of faith, of love, of success. From somebody who didn't live in the past or in the future, but who lived, who learned the art of living here and now. I was just talking to somebody this morning. I said, you know, when you're younger, you can't wait till you're old, and then when you're old, you wish you were young. The secret is to be you right now, to rest in this moment. David was a man who didn't dwell on his past mistakes, and they were big. Didn't concern himself too, too much with the hypotheticals of the future, but learned to live in the here and now. So the first thing he teaches us is it's a life of humility. And real humility isn't, pu- isn't putting yourself down. It's not self-denigration. It's not belittling, belittling yourself. I heard it self, I've heard it said once, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. St. Thomas Aquinas reminds us that humility, the Latin word humilitas, comes from the word humus, which is the dark organic matter that forms in the soil when plant and animal matter decay. The word refers to that which is lowly underneath our feet. Words to remind us that like the Bible says, we're here from the earth and to the earth we shall return. So these words in verse 1 are expressive words of humility. David's not arrogant or self-absorbed. He's not looking down on others. It says he's not chasing things that are too great or too difficult for him. You know, I've, I've done IT work for a long time. That's my professional background in, in a computers and IT work. And what I've noticed is some really brilliant people make the mistake of thinking that they're brilliant at everything. Have you met anybody like that? They have their specialty and they think that translates to all of life. And you know, I've worked from some big companies, I've worked all over and, and I, I, I remember this example one time, this guy, an executive, very brilliant engineer, very, very bright guy. I'm sure he's not listening. It's like the vice president or something. He used to yell at everybody all the time. And he calls me one time to his office, and he's all frustrated, his phone doesn't work, and you know, his devices never work, and, uh, and so I walk over, and back then there was batteries in the devices. And so I walk over, and I grabbed it, I flipped the battery out, put the battery back in, and I handed it back to him. And he was so mad at me, like, I could have done that, I wanted to be like, well, why didn't you? He's like, that's all, that's all you had to do? And I just thought, you know, you're a brilliant engineer, but stick to engineering, buddy, Right? See, sometimes we, we don't recognize our limits. Sometimes we think we can do everything. And I'm not saying we can't be developed and we can't. I'm never going to be developed to sing like Christine or Izzy or Ruth. Or, it's just never going to happen for me. I'm in the shower and I sing. I pretend it's happening, right? Sing to an audience of one, but it ain't going to happen. When I'm singing, I make sure Manny cuts the mic. You don't want to hear me. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I recognize my limits. 
the humility of David is to recognize I don't reach out to things that are outside of my wheelhouse, that are things that I was never called to do, that aren't part of my giftings. You're not good at everything. Gary White might be. He might be the only one. But the rest of us are not good at everything. See, David doesn't chase after things that are beyond his reach. He doesn't have ambitions that are beyond the reach of, that are not godly ambitions, that are, not, that are beyond the reach of the vision God has given him. He spends his time around the still waters, knowing the care of his father. And David's a man at peace. The opposite is humility, self-pride, arrogance, self-centeredness. And we don't want to admit that, but oftentimes we find ourselves tempted to be one of those things rather than than humble. Tempted to fall into this thinking of what we deserve or what we're owed. We want things to go our way. I hate traffic. It is the worst thing in the world to me. I cannot stand traffic or lines. I don't like waiting. I would rather drive 100 miles out of my way and keep driving than to be stuck in traffic. It's frustrating. It's annoying. I want the roads to part for me. See, we don't want long lines. We don't want distractions. We want things to go our way. We want life at the office or life at school to work out the way we want it to work out. We want to be well-liked. We want great rewards, good grades, a pay raise. We want other people to look at us with great esteem and admiration. And we want divine retribution for our enemies, don't we? We want God's grace and mercy when we do something wrong, but when somebody wrongs us, it's like, justice! I'm going to pray that the wrath of God fall upon them. See, we want better health, more money, nice to close, more days off. Our spouses and our children to appreciate us all the time. And if we're not careful, those wants will, call, will turn into all-consuming noise. That will drown out the voice of God. The noise of selfish ambition, anxiety, restlessness, worry. Cause us to think we're special We deserve more. Cause us to look down on other people. You know what we really deserve? I know what we deserve, really. I'm going to tell you the truth. I love you. I tell you, I'm never going to lie to you. We deserve hell. That's what we really deserve. The Bible says that's what we deserve. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's only his grace and mercy. So we ought to be careful to never never think it's about us. Never, Never look at ourselves more highly than we ought to. Realizing that everything is a gift of God, beginning with salvation, with his grace and his mercy in our lives. King David was determined to get rid of the noise of self-centeredness in his life. To learn what it means to have peace in God. Instead of being preoccupied, easily offended, competitive, and always comparing what we have, what we're wearing, or how we look other people. Psalm 131 shows us a life invested in study. Not just reading the scriptures to get through them, but study. 
relationship with the scriptures, depth with the scriptures, allowing them to speak deeply to our soul, stillness. Boy, is that a word we need, stillness, be still. One of the translations for Psalm 46.10 in the NASB, instead of be still and know that I am God, it says cease striving. Stop trying. Almost seems counterproductive. And know that I am God is the rest of it. Recognize what he can do and the limits of what you can do. And silence. Silence. How can we hear the voice of God when there's all the noise of self permeating our existence? See, verse one is the life of a person who's realized humility. It's the life of a person who's content. So how did David get to experience this? And he reveals this answer to us in a pretty interesting way. David paints a picture of a young child and his mother. And the picture he paints is not of an infant. The word used here is is of a young child, of a child of about three years old. And David's painting a picture. This is important to understand. This is a child that's been weaned from its mother. It's a child that's graduated from breast milk, from milk alone, to a full diet of vegetables and fruits and grains and meats and nuts. See, in ancient time, that was about the age of three. They couldn't just go to the store and buy formula. And so most women would breastfeed their children until they were about three years of age. And about two and a half to three, they would begin to complement their children's diet with other food sources until they were weaned to fully solid foods. And so David's dealing with two things here. He's dealing with the process of weaning And the process of being at rest, of having a composed soul. And so in verse 1, he shares with us the proper attitude, the proper mindset, the proper way to view ourselves, humility. And then now he's talking about it being a process. To understand the process takes time. That it's going to happen as we allow the Lord to wean ourselves off of self-centeredness. Like a child, we don't wean ourselves, right? And so here's the thing. Pay attention to this. We will stay spiritually, emotionally, and socially immature as long as somebody else takes care of us. We will not grow emotionally, spiritually, socially as long as someone else takes care of us. All you have to do is look at some public figures in the world to see this play out. No matter how much they've accomplished, they are socially, emotionally immature human beings. Children. I was reading an article the other day about, you know, there's always these yacht wars. Like, you know, one is like, you know, oh, we're going to spend $400 million on this yacht that's, you know, 500 feet. And I was like, well, I'm going to spend it. So it's like, it's, it's little kids. It's, little, it's the same thing that happens. I got this toy. Well, my toy's better than yours. It's like, it's almost laughable. See, as long as someone allows us to think we're the center of the world, we're going to live that way. You're not the center of the world. Allow Jesus to be the center of your world. A mother has to purposely begin to substitute other food for her child. 
And listen, she doesn't do this to deprive the child. She does this for his benefit. Right? What kind of parent would I be if I just said, Fruit Loops and Netflix at 12 in the morning, you know, uh, you know when you're nine, eight years old? Sure. If that's what you want to do, it must be right. Go ahead. No, we know better. We know what's best for our kids. So this process, there's a process of depriving, but only in preparation for something more, for something deeper, for something better. To get them to the point where they can live a fully enriched life. We must allow the Lord to help us spiritually, emotionally, and socially grow up. To move beyond the, the idea that our spiritual diet consists of Sunday. Like this is a booster shot, and this Sunday is going to get us through to next Sunday. And maybe if, maybe if we have time, we'll pop in for another 30 minutes, and then that'll get us through. My job is to feed you to some degree, but my job is to develop you so you learn to be fed yourselves. So you learn to grow. This should be a small supplement to your spiritual diet. Especially now where we have podcasts and Bibles and commentaries. We have access to all kind of material. We have access, most importantly, to God himself. The veil's been torn. What do we spend our time doing? What do we spend our time pursuing? And does it lead to anything but restlessness? We must get to the point where we are in fact doing our own spiritual planting and harvesting. And some of the ways we do this is through things like prayer, not just group prayer, that's great, we come together and pray, but your own quiet prayer time. Fasting, the Bible does Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you fast, doesn't say, if you get around to fasting, he says, when you fast. Jesus is just assuming if you're a believer, that's part of your spiritual reality. And fast doesn't mean eat really quick. Because if it did, I'd be good at that. Fast. Abstain. Service. Solitude. Do we live lives? Do we, do we take a moment to find solitude? Simplicity. Are our lives marked by simplicity? And then worship and celebration. 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 17 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. There's that same word again. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everybody may... Win at Bible trivia so that everybody can quickly recite scripture. That the person of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The Bible is given to equip us so we know who God is, so we have a deeper relationship with the God of the Bible, so we understand his character, so we know him, and so we live that out. So in a sense, we read scripture and from his breath, we gain new life. We must learn as a pattern to center ourselves in the Lord. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. To find times for stillness and silence. To make it a habit to step away and let go of everything else to spend time in God's presence. 
to learn to abide in him. And it doesn't happen by accident. It's all his grace. And it's only because of this, because of a, of a life of humility, of a life focusing on not just the outer man, but the inner man, that David's finally able to say that his life is marked by a hope in God. David knew that the only hope for Israel was the Lord. Where is your hope? See, if life had taught David anything, it was a foundational truth. He knew what it meant to defeat giants. He knew what it meant to go from the sheepfolds to the highest of men's thrones. He knew what it was like to have millions and millions to hold men's lives in the palm of his hand, but he knew in a matter of seconds it could all turn to dust. He knew what it looked like to run barefoot because his son pursued him to kill him. He knew what it looked like to rebel against God and to suffer greatly for that rebellion. But he also knew that the key to life was to put his hope in God. The God who rescues, redeems, renews, and restores. Stand with me. And before I transition to worship, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to listen to this psalm again. And my prayer is that it is the psalm that we prayerfully live out, that it, it, it mark each of our lives, that it be the cry of our hearts. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Father, as we close and worship you, God, let us just receive this word, God. Again, God, we give you full access, God. Have your way. Help us to live lives where we rest in you and we keep running the race that you set out for us. We thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace, for your mercy, for your word and your spirit. We'll have your way now. In Jesus' name, amen.